All right. Well, we are continuing going through church history. We are going through a lot of church history. Um, and so we are in the modern age and talking about what was going on after World War II, how things have changed. And we're actually in the 1960s now, still looking at the ripple effects of a new emphasis within the church on, on evangelicalism, a new conservatism within the church. But the question is, how do you live as a conservative Christian? You, you say, okay, we really want to, to take the Bible seriously. We've got a new emphasis on taking the Bible seriously. What does that mean? Because for some people, that means, oh, then we need to make sure that we, we wear V-neck sweaters and have really nice cars and go to church every Sunday, but the right church. It's like, I'm not sure that's what we mean by conservative Christian. That's politically conservative person who's a Christian, maybe, but not necessarily biblical solid Christian. Maybe, but maybe not. How do you identify that? Well, another track that you can take, other than um, trying to make sure that you are very socially or politically conservative, is to be actively conservatively involved in what the Bible says to be involved with. To be involved in social issues, to be involved in doing things in ways that honor God. So, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. led a march in Washington. Now, probably familiar, King's a rising leader in the Civil Rights Movement. He's born in Atlanta, named in memory of the historic German reformer Martin Luther, right? When he was five. That's when he was actually named in honor of Martin Luther. He was born Michael King. So, I don't know, maybe, maybe you knew this, maybe I'm throwing you, but... Uh, Michael King, and then when he was five, his father, the Reverend Michael King Sr., went to Germany for a conference in 1934 and decided to legally change both their names. So both of them are now, instead of Michael King Sr. and Jr., they're Martin Luther King Sr. and Jr., which just says something a little bit about the level of intensity of his dad. That, that okay, no, now we're both changing our names. I'm changing my name, which means you're changing your name, we're changing our names. Kind of an intense household. He was regularly beaten by his father. His father, extremely stern, extremely conservative, which means you beat your children regularly, right? <laughs> um, so he struggled with chronic depression throughout his life. In fact, when he was 12, he went off to attend a parade uh, without talking to his parents. In fact, his parents had said, don't go to the parade, but he snuck off because he wanted to see it. And when he came back, that's when he found out that his grandmother had had a fatal heart attack while he was gone. So, King attempted suicide by jumping out of a second-story window. Obviously, didn't, didn't, didn't succeed in committing suicide. But it tells you a little bit about where he's coming from. All of this was exacerbated by the fact that when he was in college, he fell in love with uh, a, a white woman from Germany, but his friends pressured him to drop that relationship. They said, nope, there's no way that you're ever going to be a pastor in the South if you're married to a white woman and, and your family's going to be hurting and it's just, it's just not worth it. So even though he considered her the love of his life, he ended that relationship, again still struggled with depression. Part of all this is to explain that even when we're talking about really amazing people that we consider heroes of the faith, they still are people and they struggle with things. He struggled then with bouts of adultery for the rest of, of his life. In fact, the FBI um, trying to curtail his his activities that they saw as socially inappropriate, um, sent him a long letter uh, saying that they have recordings of his adultery because they had been surveilling him. And in the letter they suggested, you know, if you're going to keep doing this kind of stuff, if you're going to keep marching, if you're going to keep telling people that they need to change laws and stuff, man, Maybe we'll just release all this information that we have, all these pictures of you, all these recordings of you. See if people like that, you know, right? we know you struggle with depression. We've done psychological studies of you. You know, maybe you should just end it all. You ever consider just, you know, committing suicide? Yeah. Matter of public record. Now, it's possible, it's probable, that what they were actually doing is saying, not that we actually want you to commit suicide, but that we want you to stop doing the stuff that you're doing. We want you to stop all this civil rights movement stuff. But the fact remains that it's a difficult time. And there's a lot of people in the world, and a lot of people in our country at this time that are really struggling with what it means to be a conservative Christian. Anyway, like I 
grandfather, he became a, a, a Baptist pastor, defender of civil rights for all people. And the, that uh, defense of civil rights was catapulted to the public eye in 1955 with a bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, after a woman was arrested for refusing to give up her seat on a public bus to a white person. Remember the woman's name? Assuming not Rosa Parks. Not Rosa Parks. Claudette Colvin. Remember her, right? Have you heard the name? Well, good. Yeah. She refused. She's a an unwed, rather uncouth, pregnant 15-year-old student. She was really a difficult person. And so King's Committee in Alabama and Arkansas, that they're not Arkansas, Alabama, um, thought, you know, she may not be the best test case for this. She may not be the person we want to be a public face for civil rights because perhaps an unwed, pregnant, 15-year-old, foul-mouthed girl is the person we want to say, look, look, this is a stand-up person. This is exactly the person we want to defend. So they kind of actually let that go a little bit. But nine months later, Rosa Parks got arrested for doing the same thing. And she was a much better test case. And so they said, oh, okay, we will allude to Claudette as we go through things, but we're never going to trot her out in the public. We don't, uh, we don't necessarily want her to be part of our public face. Parks is an educated, upstanding, well-respected uh, secretary of the local NAACP. She's already been involved in social action. She's already been, uh, uh, she's a, a, a wife. She's already been somebody that has been part of the community. She investigated the 1944 gang rape of Reese Taylor in, in Alabama, who had ended, uh, which had ended with a very little police investigation. They didn't, the sheriff didn't even call any of the, uh, the uh, apparent assailants in for questioning. And then everything was thrown out in court. The woman, in court, the uh, the uh, defense attorney for the for the assailant said that she was a local prostitute. The the sheriff said that she was clearly a woman who has been involved in all sorts of sexual shenanigans in the in the town and very shifty and shiftless. And the woman was actually a happily married mom who was walking back from a church service when she was gang raped. But nobody listened to that. And the entirely male white jury, well, several of them were good friends with the assailants. So nothing ever happened with that. She also investigated the 1955 murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till, who was killed for flirting with a white girl. I should clarify, probably didn't flirt the nicest ways. He, was, he, was, he did some inappropriate things, but nothing worth getting beaten to a pulp and lynched over. And by the way, all of his murderers were acquitted because realistically, as the, as the defense attorney said, if you don't acquit these guys, if, if, if we can't lynch a man who is a danger to white women, your, 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 ancestor, or, yeah, your ancestors are going to roll over their graves. And so they all said, yeah, you're right. 14 years old. So she was kind of tired of it by the time 55 rolls around. She's, she's like, I, I'm sick of the racism. I'm sick of uh, the double standard. I'm sick of everything just going because that's what everybody has always done. So she was sitting in the front row of what at that time was called the colored section of the bus. So if you remember, under the separate but equal laws at the time, it was okay to say, this water fountain is for white people. This water fountain is for black people. This part of the bus is for white people. This part of the bus is for black people. Everybody has their own sections. They're not supposed to be different. They're not supposed to be of different quality, but they always were, as in point of practice. But what was interesting is, at this time, there was a, there was a black section of the bus and a white section of the bus, and there's a sign that the driver would put in the, in the bus itself saying, this part is this part, and this part is that part. But the sign was movable, because you never know how many of either race you might have in the bus at the time. So at the driver's discretion, he could move that sign at any time, move it forward, move it back. She was sitting in the front row of the colored section of the bus. But when more white passengers got on and the bus was full, he moved it a couple rows back. 
So she's now sitting in the back rows of the white section of the bus, retroactively. We told all the black people to move because they are now sitting in the last rows of the white section. And so the other three moved, but she refused to. She's like, yeah, I'm, I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of being told to move. I'm tired of doing this kind of stuff. And I know that we're looking for a test case. So, no, I'm done. I'm not moving. Echoing the successful 53 Baton Rouge bus boycott led by uh, Reverend Jemison, the Montgomery Improvement Association called King to lead them into a citywide boycott of the public transportation system there by black people. And that worked beautiful. But what people don't think of when they look back, what they don't realize is what they boycotted for, what they demanded is that that sign be unmovable. They didn't boycott saying until you integrate buses, until you remove segregation, we're going to boycott. No, no. They just said, you know, rivet that thing to the wall so that it, it can't move from place to place. Would that have been enough? Is that how you think of the civil rights movement? We want you to be fair in your segregation. Would that have been enough? What do you think? Would that have been appropriate? Would that have been enough? It's still segregation. It is still segregation. So is that, is that a good thing? It's a step in the right direction. Again, I was, we were just talking about this as elders the other night. You have to stop and look at things from that side of history, not from this side of history. Yeah. It does mean that if there's a lot more whites than blacks on the bus, blacks might get a seat while whites have a stand. It, it can work that way, exactly. The, the idea is we tend to look at this and say, but that's still patently unfair, which it is. But you have to look at it from that side of history, not this side of history. You need to look at it and say, all right, it is still segregation, but it's not an, an, as abusive a segregation. We are working towards saying there are inherent rights even within this system. We tend to look at it and say, oh, but that's still horrible. It's better. It's moving in the right direction. So is that good or bad? It's progress. It's making a point about things. It's saying the law needs to change because people's civil rights are being stepped on. Got to look at it in its context. Well, the boycott was so successful that the city ended up saying, okay, we're going to desegregate buses altogether. We're going to desegregate lots of different things. Because the state ends up saying, actually, I think the way we're doing this, especially since you had the Brown versus the Board of Education the other, a couple of years ago, all of a sudden we're like, you know, we, um, we might be unconstitutional here in what we're doing. But King and other leaders were also indicted for violating a 1921 statute against actually boycotting stuff. You don't get to boycott businesses like that in, uh, in, in, in uh, Alabama. So, he's either going to be jailed for, uh, I think, 300 days, I think, or pay the $500 fine. And King said, no, I'll take jail. Send me to jail. For, the, for doing the thing that ended up making you do the right thing. And it didn't serve very long because that immediately got him national attention. I think he was only in jail for like two weeks, two and a half weeks, something like that. And they're probably like, what are we doing? We're just giving this guy a national pulpit. And part of that national pulpit, 1963, he led a march of roughly 250,000 people in nonviolent protests that culminated in music and speeches on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Never been anything like this in the United States. Not, not anything at that kind of a level. Standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial, because he was consciously trying to evoke Lincoln, he even used Lincoln-y language as he spoke, he delivered one of, the, one of the greatest persuasive messages, one of the greatest persuasive speeches in the history of English, if you ask me. I, I would put it out there with, the Gettysburg Address with FDR is the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. JFK saying, ask not what your country could do for you. Reagan's tear down this wall. And this is an excellent speech. Some of it echoed other people's excellent speeches, but it doesn't really color the fact that this is still an excellent speech. He did have a problem with, okay, he had a fairly sizable repeated problem with plagiarism, of just taking large chunks from other, his whole dissertation was taken from other, it's not the point, the point is, is, he was still very, very good at what he did, 
And he shared his dream for racial equality, genuine freedom for all people. In fact, gave one of my all-time favorite quotes, especially from a, 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 a perspective of socio-political change. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I remember getting in trouble in college for quoting this to somebody who said, well, of course you can say that, you're white. And I said, I'm quoting King. I love this. To stop and say, instead of judging one another, instead of making all these decisions based solely on the color of our skin, can we look at the heart of people? Can we look at their hearts and say, I don't see... I don't see a black sister, I don't see a white I see a sister. I see somebody in Christ. That's what I see. If you've ever seen, have you, have you ever actually seen this speech? It's, it's a 20-minute it's a investment that pays off. Watch the speech. It's good, but it gets awesome at the end when he starts departing from his notes. Which, often dangerous for a pastor. And yet, it's really good. He says, departing from his notes and improvising and letting that inner Baptist ministry guy out. Incredibly powerful stuff. Now, we'll talk more about King and about the Civil Rights Movement later on, but I wanted to make sure that we... Yes? Could you go back to that quote? Something that has really bothered me lately is, like, I totally agree, this is a great quote, and yet today... People don't want you to judge by the content of someone's character because, well, that's not fair because our characters are different. And I want to do something different that you think is bad. And that's judging people. Mm -hmm. And so we absolutely do not believe this today, especially um, especially people who are different. The people he was trying to defend are the people that hate this kind of quote now. Oh, yeah, I would say, I would say realistically, both sides of the political fence struggle with this, but ironically, the very uh, among the very people that, that he was trying to defend, the very people he was trying to support, none of the color of your skin is, is crucially important, and the content of your character should be something that you don't talk that much about, because who are you to judge? So, yeah, it's, it's a very powerful quote that we often ignore now, in his memory. Alright, uh, I didn't want to get past... Uh, I didn't want to get past 1963 without talking about this, because this is a powerful day. Uh, but beyond that, I wanted to remind us that this is the context of, um, of an America that saw this as moving in all the wrong directions. To a lot of conservative white traditionalists, this is in the same pile as stuff like losing school prayer, losing Bible readings in school. A lot of people talked about this as being pseudo-communist attacks on American values. Now, we can look at this on this side of history and sit there and go, no, 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 no. This is, this is supporting solid American values of, of all men being equal, of, 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 of supporting the scriptures where God doesn't look at people as Jews and Greeks, slave and free, male and female. He looks at people and sees the character inside of them. No, this is, this is extremely conservative in all the right ways. But do you understand why to a lot of people, they're like, I keep seeing everything that I grew up with eroding underneath the, the wheels of change in America. Do you understand where they're looking at it that way? Wrongly, wrongheartedly. But this was a scary thing. When you look at this, I look at this and I am moved. I look at 250,000 people peacefully demonstrating for all the right stuff. And I say, praise God, to a lot of people, this was a terrifying image. Especially among Democratic Senator Olin Johnson, Democratic Representative William Jennings Bryan Dorn. Dorn said, it's insane for Washington to actually support an enemy's march on the city. You actually support an invasion of your own city? How stupid are you? Johnson said, you do realize this will break out in violence. That's what will happen. Everybody on that side of the fence, it's, it, it, that's what they do. They're all militant. This is at a time when the Democrats were the loudest segregationists, right? Okay. It's important that you realize that things shift with history. Yes? What stage were they from? Um, both of them were from the South. I don't remember exactly where. Um, but Southern Democrats in particular 
ones who are the loudest. Because it, not because the Republicans are all so warm and fuzzy, but the Republicans are all sitting there going, we're looking for communists. I mean, that's what we're doing. We're, we're aiming at it. It's the Democrats that are sitting there going, there's a, there's a good old boy system that we're trying to maintain. So at this point in history, and things are starting to shift, but this is at the end of the point in history where the Republicans are the predominantly you know, urban, northern people, and, the, and the, it's the southern rural Democrats. That, you know, things shift. Please don't see history as a static thing. If you look at the platform of Republicans and Democrats in the 1890s, maybe, very different from what we would tend to think of nowadays. Anyway, remember, this is, this is only two months after Democratic Governor George Wallace pulled in Orville Faubus. Remember Orville Faubus, who called in the, the, the National Guard to bar children from going to school? Or Democrat Orville Faubus. Democrat George Wallace pulled in Orville Faubus to block black students' entry into the University of Alabama. So... This is a really sticky time in history. Two months after this is going on, King marches on Washington with 250,000 followers. So some people thought this is awesome. Some people were scared out of their minds. Because we've already had now twice, twice in the last couple of years where uh, a governor has called out the National Guard to stop the very kind of integration that King is calling for. By the way, JFK's response to this, JFK pulled an Ike and said, I'm federalizing the Alabama National Guard. They are now part of the federal troops. Therefore, if they stand with Wallace, they're not standing with their state governor, they're standing against their commander-in-chief. They're committing treason. Now they can choose which side they want to be on. Now, it's important also to notice other black leaders, several other black leaders, saw this as a bad thing also. Malcolm X, but he's not the only one. Malcolm X said this is an outing, a picnic. It's got all these integrated races. It's, it's devoid of any passion for change. Not really. It's an interesting telling quote from, from Malcolm X. He said, a revolution is bloody. Revolution is hostile. Revolution knows no compromise. Revolution overturns and destroys everything that gets in its way. And you, sitting around, you're like a knot on the wall saying, I'm going to love these folks no matter how much they hate me. No, you need a revolution. Who ever heard of a revolution where they lock arms saying, we shall overcome? Just tell me. You don't do that in a revolution. To him, what King was doing on, on, on the National Mall was an abomination to the civil rights movement. So King is kind of getting pounded on from both sides. And it was racially integrated. 20 to 25% of the people there were white. Now, is that proving that Malcolm X is right? It's turning this into an integration of the race as we all just come together and say, oh, let's be happy and nice to one another instead of the black movement it should be. Or does that support Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream where he says, no, I kind of want to see a world where... We just look at each other and see the content of our character and stand for truth together, regardless of the skin color. I don't know, it kind of depends on the perspective you're coming at this from in the first place. The microcosm, the wonderful microcosm to me, is all the celebrities that came out. That, to me, really tells the story of the attitudes. You had Harry Belafonte and Diane Carroll and Charlton Heston and James Garner and Paul Newman and Marlon Brando and Sidney Poitier and James Baldwin, Burt Lancaster, Sammy Davis Jr., Gobs of people coming together. To some, like Marlon Brando, this was cool. This is the cool thing I get to do now. I don't mean that he didn't necessarily believe, but it's like cause du jour. Later on, it'll be Native Americans, and I'm going to send a fake Native American to come take my Academy Award so that I can make it. It's just a, it's just a bizarre statement from a bizarre guy. To others, like Paul Newman over here. This is what liberals do. He spent a lifetime being liberal. Again, doesn't mean he doesn't personally believe this, but every conceivable liberal thing that you could do, that's what Paul Newman stood for, and this is just another one of those things. Again, you can totally believe it, but it's, just, it's part and parcel of all this different stuff. To others, like Harry Belafonte and James Baldwin and others, 
This is an opportunity to really express how frustrated you are, how angry you are. Spent generations being disrespected and, and mistreated by a, a white supremacy. This is just wrong. To others, like Sidney Poitier and Charles Heston, who was still a Democrat at the time, he wasn't. He didn't turn into a Republican until what, eighty-seven? That's when he finally officially switched parties. But to, to others, this is an opportunity to step out and say, no, this cause matters for this cause. Whether or not I'm also uh, trying to save whales or against global warming or pro-fossil, anti-fossil, whatever. This is the cause I'm involved with here. This matters. We need racial equality. We need reconciliation. We need to do this in a peaceful and God-honoring kind of way. I love the snapshot of all the different people who came at this from all sorts of different reasons, all coming together in a particular group that came to things peacefully and got out of it. Whether that's what drew them in the first place or not, that's what King led. President Kennedy very carefully did not meet with anybody beforehand. It's like, I am consciously avoiding this entirely. I'm not speaking about it, and I'm not meeting with anybody. Because I don't want to give anybody any sound bites. I don't want to give anybody anything where they say, I just met with Kennedy, and he agrees with us. Like, noop, 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 noop. And, to be honest, the White House was afraid that Johnson was right. What if this does devolve into violence? What if you do have 250,000 people and something goes bad? Do you really want to have, half an hour ago, said, I think this is a wonderful idea, as President of the United States? So Kennedy's like totally hands off of the whole thing until after it worked, and then he conspicuously met with all the leaders. It's like, absolutely. And I, and I, I genuinely believe he genuinely supported it. He just supported it afterwards when he made sure that it worked okay. He set up those meetings beforehand. Like, beforehand, I'll set up a meeting to meet with you afterwards. But what we talk about afterwards kind of depends on what happens in that meeting. Gotta remember, it's a very fragile time. And even church people are sitting there going, I don't know which direction I'm supposed to jump. What is actually honoring God here? And so, people coming at us from a different perspective, all sorts of fracturing and schisming going on. Speaking of fracturing and schisming, the Lutherans fracture and schism in the same year. If you remember, back in the 1830s, the old Lutherans, the guys that uh, had protested Friedrich Wilhelm's Prussian Union, where Friedrich Wilhelm said, let's get all the churches together, all those Lutheran churches, all those Calvinist churches, Let's just peel off all the pointy bits and make everybody get along well. So Lutherans, don't mention Luther, don't talk so much about grace and all that kind of stuff. Calvinists, don't mention any of the tulip bits. Let's all come together and everybody just be happy. That, that's going to work, right? Ironically, it worked for a lot of people. I think there's, even today, we see a lot of people going to churches theologically, they don't necessarily agree with, but, you know, it's where my grandma went. I grew up in this church. I, I like the church is close to my house. I have to pass this church to go to the church I actually agree with. So no, I'm going to do this. Anyway, the, the old Lutheran said, "No, no, no, no. We 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 refuse to carve off the the pointy bits." So they go to America and they settle in the area now known as Wisconsin. While the new Lutherans, the guys from Saxony, who went, "Oh, we can." We can carve off some of the funky bits. It's okay. You know, we, the important thing is that we're all Christians. We all want to get along and let's fellowship with everybody and love everybody well. Don't just see them as a bunch of liberals. You know, no, we're just we're willing to, to flex because we want to honor Christ. You know, yep. Those guys ended up settling around St. Louis when they came over to the New World, which is why even today the Wisconsin Synod Lutherans tend to be extremely conservative and reactionary, whereas the Missouri Synod Lutherans tend to be more open and accommodating to things. All right? They both tend to look at the other one and go, you're a little kooky. Okay, they say it a little bit more harshly than that. Anyway, there was also an evangelical Lutheran synod, basically of Minnesota's Norwegians, and there was a synod of evangelical Lutheran churches, which was Slovakian on the East Coast. There were a lot of synods all over the place. These are the four largest ones. Together, all the synods formed the Evangelical Lutheran Synodical Conference of North America, 
shortened as Elskin. Because <laughs> that's just a not wieldy name. Well, those words, yeah, follow. Oh, okay. okay, by the 1950s, they were beginning to chafe with one another. Because they, 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 they still saw each other as different nationalities. They still saw each other as, as uh, all those pointy bits even within Lutheranism struggling. For instance, stuff like predestination. What, what is predestination talking about? What's the argument between different sides with, about predestination? There you go. Christ predestined before you were ever born whether or not you're going to be saved. So do you agree with that or not? That wasn't the problem that these guys had. To them, it was, had sinners been predestined to become Christians because God foreknew that they would make a decision for Christ? Or were they predestined by God to make that decision in the first place? There was no argument about whether or not you were predestined. Not, not within this particular argument. No, no, no. They were pointed, poking each other with pointy sticks based on exactly how you were predestined. No, no, you, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's what normally people do. Well, maybe you were predestined. Maybe you got, no, both these guys go, no, you were predestined by God to make a decision, or you were predestined because God knew you would, on your own free will, make a decision. But either way, oh, you're predestined. So, um, the mostly predestined Missouri Synod, who sat there and said, oh, you're predestined because God knew you were going to make a decision, began to fellowship with the totally predestined Norwegians. And so the other mostly predestined Wisconsin Synod, i.e. Wisconsin Missouri, agreeing on predestination, charged both groups with heresy and then denounced the Missouri group for changing their view on predestination in order to fellowship with the Norwegians. Which, which they didn't. And the Missouri people even said, no, 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 we still agree with you. We just, they're Lutherans. We, they're like us. And, you know, even in Germany, we were like, well, let's all try to get along. And so Wisconsin said, so, basically, you've changed your views. No, 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 we agree with you. We just, we just think we can fellowship with them, too. So in 1955, the Norwegians leave us, us, because they said, nobody agrees with us. We're the only people here who think what we think. So we're out of here. And the Wisconsin Senate left in 1961 saying, no, because we are absolutely certain the Missouri people agreed with them. I mean, we know that other people are, are bending their theology when they should not bend your theology at all. And Missouri said, we, but we didn't. So Wisconsin left. They joined with other conservative branches to form the Confessional Evangelical Lutheran Conference which shouldn't be confused with the Church of the Lutheran Confession, which is a completely different Lutheran church that had broken off from Wisconsin earlier because they said Wisconsin hadn't broken off soon enough. And if you didn't break away soon enough, then obviously you're complicit in the heresy, so you're a heretic too. Which actually just makes sense, doesn't it? The Wisconsin people go, you're actually supporting this. That means you're a heretic. And there were some Wisconsin people go, and you're not shooting them? You're a heretic too. Like, what? What? Missouri Church and the Slovakian Church, those two joined up and formed the Lutheran Church in America, which should not be confused with the oddly unrelated American Lutheran Church. Because the Lutheran Church in America and the American Lutheran Church, not related at all. Until they all came together, of that group came together, into the short-lived Lutheran Council in the United States of America. So that's, that's another group, which split in 1987 when the conservative ALC, American Lutheran Church, and LCM, the, the Missouri Church, formed the American Association of Lutheran Churches out of Fort Wayne, Indiana. And the liberal ones formed the extremely liberal Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. So all those are different groups. All of which is to say, the next time someone says, I'm Lutheran, <laughs> don't assume you know what that means. Okay? <laughs> all churches do this. It's amazing how many churches split over. I mean, I, I went to, uh, to a seminary that was run by the Evangelical Free Church. This church is an Evangelical Covenant Church. 
<coughs> there was a time when those were the same church. But they split off. And so, yeah, it happens. An amazing number of churches that think, oh, well, I disagree with you, therefore I cannot have anything to do with you. And we're not even saying, well, I'm a Baptist and you're a Mormon. I can't pretend we're the same. It's, I'm this kind of Lutheran and you're that kind of Lutheran. I can't have anything to do with you. Okay, 1965. The Chalcedon Foundation was formed. Anybody ever hear of the Chalcedon Foundation? Founded by a guy named Rusus John Rushduni, who was the son of an Armenian pastor. Let me say that carefully. Armenian from Armenia in Turkey, not Armenian, as in a follower of Jacob Arminius. I'm going to say that, because people, it's, just, it's a whole different vowel. Anyway, an Armenian pastor who immigrated to New York in 1915 to avoid that Armenian genocide. Remember when Turkey slaughtered 1.5 million Christians in Turkey and exiled 500,000 more? So in the span of this genocide, they got rid of 2 million Christians. Well, Rashtuni's dad was one of those Christians who left at that time. See, world history affects what happens in the church. What happens in the church affects world history. Anyway, so he formed a group called the Council, or the, the, called the, the, the Chalcedon Foundation, named after the Council of Chalcedon. Okay, and you may remember Council of Chalcedon. We talked about this a long time ago, 1,500 years ago. Okay. It was the fourth ecumenical council called back in 451 AD, and this is the one that totally finally nailed down that both and thing about the relationship with Christ. Is Christ sort of man, but totally God? Sort of God, but totally man? Is he a man who had God come on top of him? Is he, how does that work exactly? It was Chalcedon that said, all right, here's where we're officially coming down. Both and. He is both honestly God and honestly human. And half the people went, that's great. Actually, church kind of split off into four different groups. Some that said, no, he's only sort of God. No, he's only sort of God. No, he's only... Anyway, but Chalcedon decided, nope, let's nail down fully God, fully human. But it's also the place where they made the argument that ideally, the secular state should be run by the church. Shouldn't it? I mean, obviously, don't, how many of you would prefer all these being equal that Christians be elected into office? So you agree that you want people with God's wisdom in office, don't you? Therefore, ideally, Christians should be running the government. I mean, all of you that said ideally, that's who we want to live, you agree. Because you want the government run according to godly principles, don't you? Therefore, you all agreed with Rush Dooney. Okay, I'm being a little unfair, but you do see the logic, don't you? You all agree with Rush to me that yes, the the church should should run the, the government. It's a fundamentalist Calvinist group. So the fundamentalists are still around, they're still banging the drum rather loudly. Fundamentalist Calvinist group dedicated to Christian Reconstructionism, helping to bring about a theonomic society in America. Okay, I know that's a fancy word, theonomic. Anybody know what the word theonomic is talking about? Okay. Theo, Theo, God. Nomos is the law. So when you talk about something, no, anyway. uh, so so theonomic means that a society is led by the rules and laws of God. That's what you're wanting it to be. Theocracy is it's run by the church. Theonomic is it's run by God's laws. Crassy is talking about who's in charge. Nomic is talking about the laws themselves. So. He said, we should make sure we're following those Old Testament laws, like the death penalty for adultery and bestiality and homosexuality and idolatry and witchcraft and disobedient children, etc. I'm sorry. Isn't that what the Bible says? Isn't that what the Bible says? Or do you not agree with the Bible? Well, the Old Testament, therefore, doesn't apply to us, right? Because the Old Testament is just a three-quarters like intro to the real good stuff in the New Testament, right? Does the Old Testament say that if somebody is abusively talking back to their parents, you should stone them? Yeah. So like, let's just do that. Okay, yes, there's a context to some of that stuff, but it doesn't matter. That, you, 
It's a one-to-one -one correlation, isn't it? You can just take stuff out of the Bible and go apply that here. By the way, all you women should be wearing the head coverings here, you know, because that's what the Bible says. And by the way, you should, I don't want to know, but you shall be circumcised. You know, I deal, deal with God with that. There's a lot of things where it's not that the Bible is wrong. It's not that the Bible is bad. But it may not be what God is calling us to do here in this context, such as the death penalty for all that stuff. Anyway, Rashduni and the Charleston Foundation supported Dominion theology. Dim Even if you've never heard that term, what do you think Dominion theology is? We're going to talk about a Dominion. Yeah. Taking charge. You need to reclaim the elements of our culture for God. Let God be the Lord of, of our business and government and family and religion and media and education and entertainment. God should be in charge of these sorts of things. And now we're starting to move into theocracy. The belief that the creation mandate was precisely the requirement that man subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it in God's name. So, it needs to be led by Christians whose quote, goal is the developed kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem, a world under God's law. Again, part of you should say, yeah, don't you want the world to be under God? Yeah, technically ISIS wants that too. That the, girl that the world acknowledged that and actually follow God's law, is what I'm saying, and be required to. A lot of this comes down to interpretation, and even even under all that, I, I find myself saying, whose interpretation are we following in this? It's also kind of assuming God needs help bringing everything under his law. He's like, oh, I'm going to come in and make all of this under God now. Absolutely. And, you know, being a Calvinist, an extremely militant Calvinist, he would say, absolutely not. We're just following God's mandate. I mean, doesn't God call us to do stuff? Does God ever call us to do stuff? So does he need your help? Okay. <laughs> that was interesting. I thought I'd get No, I got this. Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> no, he doesn't need your help. Yes, he wants your help. Yes, he needs you to be involved for your sake, not because he couldn't do it without you. So, I, I hear what you're saying. I, 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 you're right, and, and I think that is kind of the heart with which he ended up going with this. But, but they would sit there and say, no, all we're doing is doing what God told us to do, always tells us to do. Um, so, no, we're just honoring God in ways that honor God. Um, most Muslims wouldn't agree with that. You know, but most Muslim do believe in argument that both Paul and Jesus and others in the New Testament but both Paul and Jesus are saying a lot of what we're doing in the Old Testament was to be a tangible example of things that God wants us to live out spiritually. It's like I, I do want a kingdom. I do want a kingdom that's led by God's law. I do want that. I just want you guys to be the kingdom. I don't want you to set up kingdoms and parliaments here like that necessarily. I want you guys to be the kingdom. I want to work in there. You said should be put to death and you never do it again. Exactly. Yeah. So should there be, should there be a death penalty for adultery and bestiality and homosexuality and disobedient children? Absolutely. And for stealing pencils, and for lying to your neighbor, and for gossiping. Yes. Something absolutely should die. 
not because you put a gun to their head or, or, or a noose around their neck, but I think all of us would agree, Christianity isn't made up of people who were improved. Christianity is made up of people who died and were risen again with God. There was a point when you were dead in your sins, and then there's a point when you're no longer dead in your sins. That's what Christianity is. You don't just ease into it. It's a punctiliar moment where you move from death to life. So yeah, it's a spiritual it's a spiritual death penalty. Well, they argued within this context, he argued within this context, that the heresy of democracy has worked havoc in the church and state. Christianity and democracy are inevitably enemies. The only true order is founded on biblical law. All law is religious in nature, and every non-biblical law, law order, represents an anti-Christian religion then. The state must become Christian and apply biblical law to every area of life and apply the full measure of God's law. That's a wonderful synopsis of, of dominion theology. So, as part of it, according to Rushduni, that also precludes things like interracial and intercultural marriages. So, all those should be against the law and punishable as well, since, if you look at nature, I mean, there's always, hybridization always breeds sterility. And that's what God is going to do to us. So, it's not just interracial marriage, it's also Americans shouldn't marry people from other cultures, because that is a hype. No, you need to stay with your own. He wrote quite extensively on that, the importance of that. Of course. He's a Christian. You do understand. I mean, that's the way he's looking at it. Of course. You, you marry within your own. That's what you do. Amazingly. An amazing amount of non-Christians doesn't like this. I don't. It's like, um, no. I don't like that idea. But also a lot of the Christian right, the very conservative Christians even, like, um, no. It's a little bit like what you guys went through. They're like, um, yes, we'd like Christians in office. Yes, we'd like the world to run on godly principles. No, I don't think we need to forcibly overturn things and run on Old Testament laws, especially your interpretation of them. Because that's why I brought that up about, uh, about the marriage thing. Is This isn't just follow biblical law. It's follow my interpretation of biblical law and just call that biblical law. Let's drop off the whole my interpretation of and just say this is what the Bible says. I always find it fascinating the people, that, the churches that say, we don't have a statement of faith. We just follow the Bible and you're wrong. <laughs> we follow the Bible too and we don't think we're, we're wrong. No, the Bible clearly says, in your interpretation, oh no, it's not interpretation. It's the Bible. Yes, the Bible is the inerrant word of God. You're errant all over the place. Your interpretation of the Bible is errant a lot. The Bible isn't. But we sure can be. Anyway. I think I think Rashtuni himself would have liked that. I think he really would have liked that people call him poison. Because he's like, yeah, Christianity is antithetical to democracy. Christianity is antithetical to to the American political system that stands now. Yeah, if you call me poison, good, I'm toxic to a bad system. Part of why I bring this up is that in the 1960s, as part of Christian Reconstructionism, Rushduni wrote a series of books attacking secular education as inherently anti-Christian. The, the government's anti-Christian, uh, the way we do religion is anti-Christian, our media is anti-Christian, etc. But he wrote a series of books that were extremely influential about why secular education, any secular education, is inherently anti-Christian. And so he started articulating the need for a Christian homeschool movement. There had never been anything like this before. People had homeschooled. But the idea of a coordinated movement by Christians to move out of the secular sector to homeschool because there's something inherently wrong with secular schools. That's new. That's a new way of looking at it. And so this, this whole movement about protecting your children from that anti-biblical environment. And yes, I would include Peoria Christian, Aletheia, things like that in this. He would say, yes, those are also bad. You can't trust those. They allow races to mix. Don't they? 
If you, you send your kids to the Peoria Christian, did they inform everybody, by all means, do not interact with other races? Then they're unbiblical, according to Rush Dooney. And, and they have to work within the legal structures of a fallen secular system. Yeah, it's a Christian school, but they still work within the laws of a secular nation, don't they? Rush Dooney noted positively when talking about the importance of homeschooling. He said, when New England passed laws requiring the death penalty for incorrigible delinquents and for children who struck their parents, no executions ended up being necessary. The law kept children in line. That's what we need to do. I mean, it's not like we're actually going to have to kill them. Probably. Because the mere fact of the law will keep them from doing this. So thanks to Rush Dooney, the Christian homeschool movement was launched for the first time Christians en masse in a coordinated effort, built their own community curriculum to directly apply the disdain for secular education. Now, before anybody tries to beat me up out of class, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with homeschooling, or there's anything wrong with the Christian homeschooling movement, or that there's anything wrong with protecting your children from bad school districts. I'm not saying any of that. All I'm saying is, is what we look at now as this Christian homeschooling movement, a lot of this, actually pretty much all of it, started with Rush Dooney, with this absolute disdain for a secular environment. But this is exactly when they took prayer out of schools and when a lot of things were changing. And even not too long before that, schools weren't public. Right. And there was no National Board of Education at all. You can make you can make a, a solid argument that it wasn't an arm of the state until fairly recently before. Arguably so. Arguably so. And even and even when it was, the state was not as actively non-Christian. I won't say anti necessarily. It's not. So you can make an argument that even though, even even in the '60s, even the mid '60s, in the midst of while he's writing this stuff, the people reading his books. Even if they, they wouldn't necessarily have agreed with Rush Dooney's conclusions on, you know, like throwing rocks at children until they die. But it did hit a resounding chord where they're like, yeah, the, the, the public school system is just falling apart. Yeah, this is, this is moving my children away from God. Yes, I'm watching this erode. You can totally see why people would go, no, nah, this makes some sense to me. Now, there's also a... a, a a bit of a backlash to that. There are other people that sat there and said, well, if the system is eroding, the last thing I'd want to do is take my kids out of it. You know, I, I, I want to make sure that I'm in it and so I can work to change the system. So I can work to infuse that. with." So I know I'm talking to people, some people who homeschool their kids, I know I'm talking to people who sent their kids to Christian schools. Please understand, I'm not, I'm not beating any drum where I'm saying X or Y should happen. I'm trying to say different people are coming at this from different angles. Do you say we should be in Christian schools? Do you say there's something even inherently wrong with Christian schools? Do you say this means we need to be in outreach to secular schools? All these are reactions to the question, well, how, does a, how does a conservative Christian then live? What do you, what do, you do? Um, so Rush Dooney, even though he took what, from our perspective, would be extremely militant positions on, on things, there are some things that have come out that are really really quite cool. There's a lot of very positive things in the Christian homeschooling movement. It's just we need to see contexts to things and, and where things and where things have come out of. And Michael says this is a, it's, it's good to remember the political and social context of this day. Things are the process of eroding in the mid-60s. So what do you do with it? 1966. Yes? Is that still around? The Christian homeschooling movement? No, the Charleston Foundation? Yeah, he passed away, but the Charleston Foundation is still around. Okay, have they had much influence on political... You tell me. <laughs> think, think about it. It's like, have they? Uh, I mean, they've, yeah, I mean, they've been involved in different things. They have various conferences and stuff. Um, I would argue that our country has gotten increasingly more secular, even in this. They would say, yeah, look... Just think of how bad it would have been if we hadn't been doing this for the last 40 years. All right, 66. Good News for Modern Man was published. How, are you familiar with Good News for Modern Man? Try. 
There's a lot of English Bibles floating around by 1966. I mean, we, we've seen a ton of translations. You had the American Standard Version that gave rise to the Revised Standard Version, and the New American Standard Version, the Amplified Bible. The Jehovah's Witnesses even created their own New World Translation. We have a lot, a veritable plethora of English translations. Yes? Good news from Modern Man. That was was that a trans that wasn't a translation? That was a special, special. I'm giving you a nickel after class. Okay. The American Bible Society realized that people for whom English is a second language, they really needed a translation that's easy for them to understand. A translation. An amazing number of people think of good news as a paraphrase. But technically it's not. It's a, it's a kind of translation. So turning to the theories of a linguist named Eugene Nida, they published the New Testament for the Good News for Modern Man in 1966. It's a stripped-down, simplified English for people for whom English is a second language. Nida had an interesting theory about translation. He said, what we need is dynamic equivalence. There had always been word-for-word -word literal translations, familiar with those, and there had always been paraphrases. Each of those is fraught with peril, because formal translations can be clunky and difficult to understand. If you do this word-for-word -word translation, it can be. For example, translate the, the Polish phrase, which I'm not going to try to read, and you get, did an elephant step on your ear? Which means what? That's the literal translation, and that means what? So I go back to saying, Word-for-word -word translations can be clunky and difficult to understand because you don't share the same idioms. By the way, it means you're tone deaf. You have no musical ability. You automatically jump to that if you saw that in your Bible, right? Okay, paraphrases can miss the poetry and even the point of the original. For example, if you were to update Lincoln's four score and seven years ago into a more modern 87 years ago, what would that do for you? You'd lose the poetry of it, right? But nobody talked like that when Lincoln gave his speech. They weren't saying four score and seven years ago. That was archaic language. Why did Lincoln use archaic language? Because he's hearkening back to older things. He's wanting, for the same reason the writer of Hebrews says, to the Hebrews. There were no Hebrews when he wrote that. Consciously hearkening back. So, yeah, when you paraphrase, not only do you lose the poetry, you lose the point sometimes of the poetry. So Nida argued that the best kind of translation makes use of something that two guys named Ogden and Richards came up with. It's an Ogden and Richards triangle. That there's a reality out there that we use words to express, but what we share when we speak is not the reality. If I'm talking about a dog, I don't hand you that dog necessarily. It's not even the symbol of the word necessarily. What you're sharing is the thought. You want that thought to be the same. Because if you use the exact same symbol, you might have a different thought conception. And it doesn't come on. So if you say, I love, I love dogs. And the other person goes, I know, they're delicious. <laughs> you have not conveyed the thought right, right? And so what he says is the best translation would be to, to confer, to convey the reference, that thought to the other side. That's the key thing. Use as much of the structures you can, use as much of the words as you can, but get the idea across. That's the key issue. So, if you were translating a Spanish novel, how would you best translate the trite idiom in Spanish, cuatro ojos de más que dos, into English? The literal four eyes see more than two. That's what it says. It's poetic. Is that what you use? Or do you do the paraphrase, we need to work together on this? Or do you do a more dynamic, two heads are better than one, which is the English version of that idiom. Same kind of structure, but different words. There's a trade-off to all of those, because this is what you actually are saying. And, and there's a reason why this is important. If you change it to two heads are better than one, you lose something, right? This is what you mean. So if you're talking to somebody who doesn't speak Spanish or English, you're talking to a German, Neither of these necessarily means anything to them. So do you want to convey the paraphrase here? Or if you sit there and you say, part of what that novel was getting at is that somebody is doing a tritism. Then I don't want to make it poetical 
to an English hearing speaker, I want to remind them of the trite phrase. I don't know. What's the context? You have to stop and think, what all am I trying to convey to whom? So, good news for modern man made use of dynamic equivalence, saying what we're going to try to do is move not just word for word, but thought for thought from the Hebrew and the Greek into idiomatic modern English. But that meant that a lot of it's up for the personal understandings of the translators. Chief translator, a guy named Robert Bratcher, had a lot of strong opinions for it against inerrancy. He said, often in the past and still too often in the present, the Bible is the word of God, implies that the words of the Bible are the words of God. Such simplistic and absolute terms divest the Bible altogether of its humanity and remove it from the relativism of its historical process. No one seriously claims all the words of the Bible are the very words of God. That's the chief translator. Is that going to affect the translation? So, good news translates some verses oddly. Um, be on guard, a literal translation of Acts 28, 28 says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. That's literally what it says. And the good news, it's be shepherds of the church of God which he made his own through the blood of his son. I wouldn't disagree, but that's just not what the original said. That's an interpretation. Colossians 2, for in him all the fullness of divinity dwells in bodily form. Literal translation. Good news, for the full content of divine nature lives in Christ in his humanity. Luke 1, the angel appeared to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Good news says, he had a message for a young woman promised in marriage to a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of King David. Her name was Mary. Yeah. It doesn't say young woman. It says virgin. It says it twice. You might say, oh, back in Isaiah, the Hebrew word could mean virgin or young woman. You go, yeah, but in, in Luke, the Greek word doesn't. The Greek word means virgin. It says it twice. Dropped it out both times. So arguably, the good news is more of almost a, a functional equivalence. It's, it's not a paraphrase, but it's moving in that direction. It's more of a, of a bunch of idioms under people's personal interpretation, and it's not necessarily a strong translation. And you can mess yourself up if you're doing Bible studies, special personal devotions out of the Good News Bible. Not maybe as bad as if you went to the message, but in that same basic category. Whereas the later NIV is a fairly literal version of the dynamic equivalence. The NIV is, is saying, we're going to try to keep as many of the same words and structures as we possibly can. But we might tweak something so that you can make sure you get the right understanding of stuff. But in general, we're going to try really, really hard. They're very, very conservative on, on, the, on, the, on the side of dynamic equivalence. So, like when I'm doing my personal Bible studies, I like to study on the, in the NIV to make sure that you got the thought-for-thought thought idea, but I also like the NAS, which is crazy literal with things. This is a solid translation, and I really like to study. I like both of them open at the same time, so I can make sure that I'm, I'm doing pretty well. And having done that for years, I'll tell you, very seldom is the NIV going contrary to the extremely literal translation. So, I mean, they're, they're a very literal version of, of the dynamic equivalence school. Does that make sense? By the way, the last several years, the last like, decade, the good news has become the most dominant English translation used in England. It's, it's, it's used in England more than any other translation, which is, which is interesting. By the way, that's the same year that the Hare Krishna started. Let's start with that one when we come back. But help me out here. How would you synopsize what's going on in history at this stage? History of the church. There's splits. There's a lot of people trying to figure out how does the conservative Christian church work in a modern world? How do we do this? Do we, do we support civil rights or not support civil rights? Can we, can we get along or can we not get along? Shouldn't we be running things? Can't we tweak this so that it works better? How does it, what do we do? Do we say, don't tweak anything, the world needs to tweak to us? Or do we say, tweak things so that we can work with the world? How does that work? How does that work for you? 
Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the opportunity to be your people in your church. Father, always a hard question, to be in the world but not of the world. So I pray, help us, Lord, to... Help us, Lord, to be able to speak in such a way that the people we're trying to reach can understand us. Help us to be able to work within this broken world. Help us not to consciously work to be countercultural in every structure that we have. But I pray, Lord, help us to be genuinely countercultural in every attitude, in every heart issue, in every thought that we have. Help us to be your kingdom. Help us to be trying to change the world, not, not outside in, but inside out. And I pray, Lord, give us your grace, your wisdom, your heart in doing so. Give all this to you in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.